This morning, uh, I'm going to do something that is completely out of the ordinary. I'm going to ask you to grab your hymnal. Find your hymnal uh, and turn to page, or I shouldn't say page, turn to number 716. Number 716. I'll give you just a second while you find it there. After last week, I learned I can't ever say that this is the first time I've ever done something in the second service, because uh, people will remind me that I did it just about an hour and a half ago. So this is the second time we've ever done something like this. <laughs> Debbie said that the church did this somewhere around 10 years ago, maybe longer. As we start this series in Exodus, I want to read this creed as a church. So read with me. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the life everlasting. Amen. This ancient creed is universal. Some of you will have picked up on the fact that our hymnals replace the word Catholic with the word Christian. The, the reason is, it's a little bit confusing. Catholic little c just means universal. And so that's a small way that whoever compiled the hymnal said, you know what, we're going to make sure no one misunderstands what we mean by this. We share this creed with Catholics, with Lutherans, with Eastern Orthodox, everywhere, all over the world where there are Christians. This is a historic confession of faith. This ancient Universal creed is the Bible in brief. Every Christian church embraces its summary of what Christians believe. And I call it the Bible in brief because it begins with Genesis. You have creation right at the beginning. It meditates on the Gospels. That's most of what it is. It describes who Jesus is, where he came from, what he did. And then it ends with revelation. It ends with the return of the Lord, with the judgment that's coming, and the promise of eternal life. You have the creation, you have the redeemer of the world, you have the coming judge, the fellowship of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. And I mention this creed now as we begin a series in Exodus, because creeds like this can help Christians think through the scriptures. Sometimes as you read Genesis or Exodus, you look at it and say, what does this have to do with me? This is totally foreign. This is totally alien. You may struggle to, to make sense of why someone would consider this inspired scripture. If you keep the creed in mind, it will help a little bit. And you'll find that the way Jesus taught the apostles in Acts, like we read in our scripture reading, how he used the prophets and the Psalms to teach about who he was. The Apostles' Creed is a super short summary that helps you understand how to see Jesus 
in Exodus. I think it's a thumbnail sketch of Christian doctrine that can help us as we gaze at the complex portrait of Christ in Scripture. So remember, keep in mind, the creed shows you creation, redeemer, and judge, forgiveness of sins, fellowship of saints, and eternal life. And I mention it now because you can see all of this in the book of Exodus, where we will go next week. As believers in Jesus, Exodus is part of our history. Exodus tells us part of where this Redeemer, Jesus, came from. Exodus shows us the faithfulness of God as He remains true to promises He made in Genesis. Promises both to save and to judge. Exodus previews the atonement of our sins, making forgiveness possible. Exodus shows us how God made Israel His people and the fellowship that they had, and the promise of a better life to come. And I believe, Lord willing, when we are done with Exodus and begin the Gospel of Mark, that's where we'll be in about six or seven months, that we will see the God who makes himself known in Exodus is the God who makes himself known in Christ. Many times, people unfamiliar with the Bible, both Christians and non-Christians, believe that Jesus is a loving teacher and the Father is a harsh and a fearful God. And they'll say that God behaved one way in the Old Testament, but completely different in the New Testament. But remember the creed that we just read. Who is the judge of the living and the dead? It's Jesus. And what's his relationship with the Father? He's the Father's only Son from all eternity past, and He is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor, the place of authority, the place of power. There is no distinction between their character. In Scriptures, God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in other words, the Father and Son are both committed to putting sin and evil to death, which results in the salvation of saints and the eternal punishment of those who reject salvation. In Exodus, we see seeds of both salvation and judgment. And Christian, this book is for you. You can know Jesus better through Exodus. And since we've just finished the book of Philippians... I want to remind you of a verse that's addressed to Christians that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. You could think of that verse as a sort of theme verse for our time in Exodus, because Exodus gives us a giant crystal clear picture of our awesome Savior God. And that's the God who saves us. You can rest in confidence that he is able to complete what he began. And you should tremble in awe of his holiness and live in humble obedience because of what he's done. And the clearer the picture that you have of him, the easier that is. And my prayer for this series is that we will see who God is in all his awesome splendor. And we will trust his word with our very lives moment by moment. My prayer is that this time in Exodus will lead to an experience of fellowship 
with God that is so powerful that the whole church will show the glory of God like Moses coming down from the mountain. And as we leave here, people will know we have been with God. In order to put Exodus in context, to understand it in light of Christ, I want to take just today and look at a few passages in the book of Genesis. And somewhat like the Apostles' Creed, I want you to remember Genesis, this is the beginning. This describes creation. But also remember Revelation. Remember what God is doing. You get the the bookends of eternal history in God's creation in Genesis and Revelation. And today, we're going to put Genesis in place to make sense of the rest of what we'll go through in Exodus. I want you to remember creation. I want you to remember the end, righteous judgment, and recognize how Exodus shows God redeeming his fallen creation and restoring it to its goodness, and at the same time, judging sinful man. And this morning in Genesis, I want you to remember three things. Creation, curse, and covenant. Creation, curse, and covenant. So first, we're going to see a little bit about creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So if you want to grab a Bible, they're all over under the seats in front of you. And just open right to the very beginning page. It it technically is not page 1, but it kind of should be. Go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. 1, 1. We're going to read the first half of the verse. All it says is, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. And throughout the chapter, again and again, it affirms that what God made was good. Later on in the chapter, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man, and when he says man, he means mankind, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does an image do? An image is a reminder of the thing that it copies. So, think with me for a second. If you have kids, I have a smartphone that captures pictures of my kids. Previous generations had little wallets that they would keep, you know, when you open your wallet, there's the picture of my kid. What is that picture for? In a lot of ways, that image is nothing like your kids. It's not alive. It's two-dimensional. But what it does is it makes it possible for you to show other people what your grandkids are like and to spread the joy, if you're a grandparent, of being a grandparent. So I have all kinds of little videos and little pictures of my kids that I feel like my kids are the most adorable, beautiful children you could ever want in your life. And I want all of you to agree with that. So when my kids aren't there in person, I use a picture to stand in place to show you what my kids are like. Us being made in God's image means we are an image that shows people what God is like. We were made to reflect God's glory and to spread the joy of his fellowship. Just like a picture of your kids will spread the joy of your family. 
And as image bearers, we are like him in a few ways. Like a picture, it's not a perfect representation. God made us with very real difference. He is infinite. We are finite. He is spirit. We are flesh. There are many differences. But let me talk for a second about the similarities because we're talking about image and what it means to be made in God's image. So first, just like the picture resembles the thing it copies, God is a fellowship of three persons. The creed affirms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three in one, and he is an eternal fellowship. And we are made to live in fellowship with him and with other people. If you take a person out of fellowship with other people, they go crazy. There's a reason that solitary confinement drives people nuts. It's because God has made us to live in fellowship with other people. So that's one similarity. God is three in one. We are made to fellowship with other people. We are not made to be by ourselves. Second, God is a creator. God is a creator. You can see the majesty of his creation as you look around. You can, if you think about the eclipse that happened this week, you can think of the grandeur of the universe and the fact that God moves planets like pinballs and uses our moon to block out the light of the sun to give us just a little reminder of how incredible and vast his creation is. God is a creator. And he made us to be creative. In a similar way, when it talks about Dominion, just a piece of dominion, is exercising vision and creating good things. And the third way that we're similar is God is almighty. He is the ultimate authority, but he has given us dominion over the earth. So the second half of dominion is not only creativity, but it's also the authority to say, this is what this will be used for. This is what this will be used for. It comes with responsibility so that you manage those things well. And because God is an authority who chose to give us some authority, we mirror his rule in a tiny way with the way we manage what he has given us. So there's a three, there are many others, but three small things that show how we reflect the image of God. Fellowship, creativity, and dominion. But the critical thing to keep in mind is that we are made to represent God in how we do all of those things. To show God's goodness in incredible ways. And we are like a mirror that reflects back an image. And this is part of what it means that we are made as an image. So I want you to think through this with me for just a second. I described three ways that we have the image of God, but in every aspect that we have this image, the basic thing that we do is we reflect back what God is like so that as people see him in us, they praise God for how good and amazing our God is. People, as image bearers, do this with absolutely everything. For good or for bad. And I use an illustration in the first service about pizza. If you have ever been to Chicago, there are fantastic pizza places. Chris, I forgot, you are actually a Giordano's guy, aren't you? I'm not. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I am. So I'm sorry about that. I'm going to bash Giordano's for just a second here. Okay, so if you go to Chicago, there are some prominent pizza places. And if you experience the cheesy, glorious goodness of Lou Malnati's with their butter crust, 
you will never want to go anywhere else. And if someone tries to tell you that Giordano's is better, you will say, you're crazy. Have you had their pizza? The sauce is the right combination of sweet and tangy. The cheese is perfect and salty. The pepperonis, I could go on, but you get the picture. You get the picture, right? (laughs) After service, road tripping to Chicago. The point is, as image bearers, we love to reflect good things. And we also kind of negatively love to bash things that are inferior. So as I, as I was disappointed the first time I had Giordano's pizza, I said, this is a waste of my time. Why am I eating this? Why am I here? That tendency is because you and I are image bearers. God made us to love to praise good things. And the ultimate thing that we do with that is if you experience God, if you know his goodness, you cannot stop praising him and loving him and showing his goodness to other people and people around you. Sometimes people feel like if God made us for his glory, that would make him sort of selfish. That would make, you know, is he sort of insecure that he needs people to praise him? No, that's not, that's not it at all. He is the greatest, most incredible thing in the world and the greatest pleasure that we could have is to enjoy him and to praise him and spread that praise. Since we are sort of a pale reflection, just like I said, a picture of your kid is not your kid. No one's going to appreciate the full greatness of your children from a picture. No one will appreciate the full greatness of God from the way we reflect his image. And so God gives man one more mandate. This is still good creation. He says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And the more we fill the earth, the more we would enjoy the glory of our good God as the little image bearers reflect his image and reflect him everywhere around creation. The problem is, Adam and Eve didn't do that. So I've talked about creation. Now we're going to move in and talk a little bit about curse. Adam and Eve disobeyed and broke fellowship with God. And so while they were made to faithfully reflect God's glory, they needed to be in fellowship with him to do that. And that's something that we have lost. In Genesis 3, the scripture describes the first sin. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read the whole thing. But it's very basic. God says, don't eat of the tree. They break that command. They disobey. And immediately... Death comes on creation in the form of separation. Sin brings death and a curse on all of us. And you see in verses 14 down through the end of the chapter, the consequences of breaking that fellowship. And as a creation that was made to reflect God's image, we are now a frustrated creation, not able to do what we were made for. We still bear God's image, but now it's marred. Now it's like looking at a Picasso instead of a Rembrandt. There's a semblance of the image, but it's twisted out of shape and it no longer reflects the original very well. And a lot more could be said about this. Just three ways, as God says to the serpent, as he says to Satan, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and he curses the semblance of Satan. And he says, I will put, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so there's a promise right away that God is going to fix this. 
that the evil that is present in Eden will one day end and be crushed. He says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. He describes later in that verse, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Remember what I said about fellowship? We're made to be in fellowship and men and women together reflect the image of God. The fall and the curse puts tension there. So it's more difficult for us to live in fellowship. Even for people that fall in love, it's hard to maintain that love. We are not living as we should live. Fellowship is no longer easy because we are broken people. And so the fellowship that is supposed to reflect the image of God becomes frustrated and difficult. Then he describes to Adam, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he talks about death as being the most obvious consequence of the fall. But he also talks about by the sweat of your face. We were made to be creative. We were made to create like God. Except now, that creativity is difficult, and we're tempted with laziness. And sometimes our creativity chases things that are bad for us that hurt people. And so every good thing that God gave us in creation is twisted and distorted and put out of joint. By the fall. And the consequences of that are still very real today. And a lot more could be said about this. Evil is one of those things that you don't have to persuade people that it exists. It's obvious if you have eyes and ears. It exists in cancers and car accidents, in miscarriages, and in divorce. It exists in wars and it exists in rumors of war. But most important, the underlying cause of all of it is that sin broke our fellowship with God. And now the thing that we're made to reflect is absent from our lives. And a critical piece of why we're made is now broken. All of us have been touched by this. But we are not without hope. With the curse comes the promise. God tells the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. One day, one of her children will put an end to the evil that started in Eden. And there's hope that a human will one day just completely destroy that evil. This is the first glimmer of hope in a dark story. And that even though we're broken, God will make a way for us to be healed. It's easy to not believe this promise, though, because as you read through Genesis, you see things actually continue to get worse. God told people to be fruitful and multiply originally to spread his glory. But now that we're broken, this curse is multiplying as people multiply. And our image is tarnished and our evil reproduces with us. So instead of God's glory spreading all over a good earth, now our tarnished and broken image spreads with us as we are fruitful and multiply. So the first sin is simple disobedience. But the next recorded sin was murder. Destroying someone made in God's image. If you, if you destroy, sometimes people do this. You experience a breakup. What do you do? You burn all the pictures of your significant other. Because you don't want to see that image and be reminded of them. If you murder the image of God, you are saying, I don't love God. I don't care about him. I don't want to be reminded of him. Genesis gets worse and worse as you read through, so bad that, it, that God hits a reset button with the flood, wipes out creation except for Noah and his family. And Noah and his family survive, but sin survives with them, and it spreads just like it did after the fall. But God's promise does not fail. So we've talked about creation, we've talked about the curse, 
Let me talk for a minute about promises. Let me talk for a minute about covenant. God begins to make more promises and you begin to see his plan for redemption unfold so that not only is there hope, but you begin to see more and more of who God is. And since we no longer reflect his image the way we should, God begins to show it to us. The fellowship that's lost in Eden becomes something that God gradually reveals so that we can see who he is and what he's like. To begin with, he makes a promise to a man named Abram. And God tells him to leave his country. And in Genesis chapter 12, so if we're at the beginning of Genesis, just turn a couple pages over, go to chapter 12 with me. God gives Abram this command and a promise. So read Genesis 12, 1 through 3 with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is incredible because Genesis has been getting very dark. There's murder, there's evil, there's idolatry. And in the midst of all that, God singles out Abram and says, I will bless you. And not only you, but the entire world will be blessed through your family. Abram does what God asked. He leaves his country and his homeland. But in spite of the fact that God has promised him a family and a nation, he continues to be childless. He doesn't have kids. And years pass. So he has this experience with God, an incredible promise. And instead of seeing that come true and come to pass, Abram, I think in a very real way, begins to doubt whether or not God will deliver on this promise. He starts to think of ways that maybe it'll come true, that I didn't understand it exactly. And so in in Genesis chapter 15, you see Abram start to have this conversation with God. And he says in verse 2, this is chapter 15, just a page over verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And then God makes him this promise in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. And you see Abraham's response in verse 6. Abram says, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. Abram is brought into a right relationship with God by trusting in the promise of God. And this is huge. This is saying that trusting in the work of God is what brings salvation. Paul points back to this verse in the New Testament. It says, we are justified by trusting that God is the one who fixes our brokenness. Not because we do a certain set of things. Not because we're good or deserve his blessing. But because we trust in his promise. And it might seem funny, this promise is just that God is going to bless this guy and through him all the people of the world will be blessed. That's not very specific. That doesn't explain how sin is forgiven. And yet, it's a little echo of what God told Eve. That one day, through your seed, the serpent will be crushed. And now he makes a similar promise to Abram. That one day, through you, all the peoples of the earth, everywhere, will be blessed. But God doesn't stop there. He actually makes a covenant with Abram so that Abram knows that he means business. Now, he had previously made a promise. How is a covenant different than a promise? Let me read a couple of verses 
and then go through it with you. So if you go down a little bit further in the chapter, let's start reading at verses 8. And I'm gonna, it's a lot, but I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So Abram says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come forth back here, sorry, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, what just happened? Okay. I think probably everyone in here has heard that little children's rhyme, Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That is a covenant. It's a promise with a threat. It's a sacred promise that describes terrifying consequences for breaking the promise. And what we've just read in Genesis is not invented in Genesis. That's part of ancient Near Eastern culture. And when two kings would come together, usually a king that was more powerful than the other one would conquer a territory and they would make a covenant for peace. And what they would do, just like you see described in verses 8 through 10, they slaughter animals. So now, if you've hunted, if you know what it means to slaughter a deer, I want you to picture that as vividly as you can. He slaughtered three animals, and they lay them out on the ground with a path between them. And they negotiate terms of peace. They say, you will pay me this kind of tribute, you will do these things, and I will not attack you. And as they make their peace, as they make these arrangements... They walk up and down between the pieces of these slaughtered animals. And what they're saying is, if you break this covenant, this is what I will do to you. And if I break this covenant, I accept that this is what you will do to me. But notice the incredible difference here is that Abram is asleep when the covenant is made. So in verse 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So the sacrifice is made, but he doesn't walk between the pieces of the animal. He is not threatened at all by this promise. God himself takes that threat and says, Abram, do you want to know how you can be assured that I will bless you? I will make a covenant and I am saying I am willing to die to bring this promise to fruition. And so you see in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. We're about to go to Exodus. And when we get to Mount Sinai, you're going to see a lot of smoke and you're going to see a lot of fire. And it's going to describe the glory of God. And what you have here in Genesis is the glory of God passing between dead animals saying, I will bless you. 
And I am willing to die to make sure that that happens. God says, I will do this thing. And if I don't, this is what will happen to me. Does that sound somewhat familiar? This is not little kids playing. This is life and death. God means business. And it's critical to keep this image of covenant in mind as we go to Exodus. Because God does this with the entire nation of Israel. But that's not the last time you see this in Scripture. Jesus says he is the minister of a new covenant. And that covenant is given to us in the blood of Christ. And so the God that promised to Abraham, I am willing to die in order to bless you, in the person of Jesus Christ, does die for each and every one of us. As I get ready to close this message, in a few moments, I want to talk a little bit more about what the work of Christ does for us. How his death is applied to us so that that broken image is beginning to be restored. But before I do that, I want to say one other thing. Notice back in Genesis 15, look at verses 12 to 16 with me again. This is when Abram is asleep, so you see him asleep in verse 12. And then verse 13, God says some things to him. He says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's happening here? Why does God say that? Abram has been asking him why he hasn't seen him follow through on his promise. And so God is saying, I am making a solemn covenant with you. I will be faithful to this covenant. And yet he's also telling him, you will not see this in your lifetime. He has a son. And so that aspect of the promise is made very real to him. But they never receive the promises of living in a land. He is a sojourner for his entire life. He never has a place to call his own. Why is that? He, he promises that his family will be sold into slavery. That does not sound like a blessing. That sounds like the opposite of a blessing. Why is God doing that? Why does he say that? Notice at the end of verse 16, he gives a reason. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. These things happen as a lesson for us that ultimately will point to Christ. And we will see Christ is very much like Moses in delivering us in making it possible for us to be welcomed into the family of God and to sharing the blessing of God. And yet, if you know God, you may not be experiencing very many of those things. God has given you many promises that you can count on, and you will have tasted and seen some of them, and they will be very real to you. And yet, at the same time, there are so many promises that you're waiting to see fulfilled. And this passage is saying, God has his purpose and his timing, and he gives Abram a little glimpse of why it's 400 years between the promise and the fulfillment. He says, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why? What does that mean? I think partly the reason here is God is just and he's patient. 
So as creation has rebelled and fallen and evil spreads, God allows people time for repentance. God does not judge unjustly. When he puts an end to evil, no one will accuse him of being unfair. In his justice, he does punish sin even today, just like he did in the garden, just like he did with Cain, just like he did with Noah. So now he is saying that time will come for him to judge the land of Canaan that he has given to Abram. But until that time, he is patient. So in his perfect time, he begins working with Abram while he is still being patient with people in the land of Canaan. But his promise is true and his patience will have an end. And all of the things he has given to Abram will one day be the people that come from him. So as I close today, I've talked about creation, I've talked about curse, and I've talked about covenant. And I've talked about God's promise to provide a savior. And as, as we close, I want to stress God's promise and his patience. Unlike Abram, we actually have a much clearer picture of salvation. We know that Jesus is the way we can be brought back to God. The God who made a covenant with Abram and swore that he was willing to die to keep it is the God who sent Jesus to die for us. The scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And although I've talked a lot about sin and the fall today, I have not talked a lot about the reality that that evil is present in each of us. It's not a problem that's out there. It's a problem that's in here. And all of us need the salvation of Almighty God to rescue us. And I want to say to you today, if you have never experienced that redemption, if you can't say for sure that your sins are forgiven and you aren't moved to worship this God, let me urge you to trust the Lord. Just like God was patient with the Amorites, he is patient with us right now. But there will come a time when his patience ends and he punishes sin. And this will result in the salvation of saints who trust Jesus and the condemnation of those who have not trusted Jesus. And we should be trembling at his awesome holiness. 2 Peter 3, 9-10 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. So let me ask you this morning, have you repented? Peter continues, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. We don't know when he's returning. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter ends talking to believers, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The fall that I talked about earlier is something that each of us needs to deal with. That evil that eclipses God's glory is still present. But through Jesus, we have hope. The Bible says that for those who have received the spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ, 
For those who trust in his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that means that the image of God in Christ that reflects the Father perfectly, all of his goodness, all of his creative genius, all of his love, that's reflected in Christ. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we are being changed into that image. We are being restored. The curse through Christ is being reversed. The image that is broken is being restored. If you understand that the Lord Jesus not only died for your sins and rose from the dead, but he is reigning and returning as the righteous judge, the only thing to do is to trust him completely with your life as you look for his return. As Christians, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We read that at the beginning of this sermon. Let me urge you to place your hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. That you can be reunited with the God that we lost fellowship with because Jesus paid the price for your sins and for my sins. Let me urge you to confess Jesus as Lord today and experience that forgiveness and to walk in it. And if you can't say for certain that you know the Lord today, I would urge you, don't leave here until you're certain. I would love to help you, showing you the scriptures, showing you how to do that. And Christian, if you already know the Lord, but maybe you've grown a little weary in waiting for the promises of God, let me urge you, look again at the scriptures. Look again at what God has promised to bless us. And to bring us back into fellowship with him. Let me urge you to anticipate the return of the Lord. And to be ready for him to come. Let's pray. Our father in heaven. Lord we don't deserve your goodness. And we praise you that it doesn't depend on us. Father, I ask that you would help us to see you clearly in the scriptures. I pray that you would help us to trust you completely. I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience. And I praise you that you have done the work and that you will complete it. In Jesus' name, amen.